Hi, I'm Francis Hellier, and welcome to my brand new podcast, Metaverse. This is a podcast for the future-minded, a series for anyone on the hunt for the next big thing and all its possibilities and implications. This is Tomorrow's World Today. With each episode, I will chat to those at the top of their fields, from futurists in crypto and space travel to forecasters in business and tech. Together, we will ask the question, what's next? Today, I'm joined by John Radoff, Chief Executive of Beamable. Founded in 2010, the company aims to eliminate all barriers that exist to building and running a successful game, allowing game makers to focus on creativity. Before starting Beamable, John built one of the first commercial games on the internet, took a web content management company public, grew a games advertising network, and launched mobile games played by millions of people, including Game of Thrones Ascent and Star Trek Timelines. As a writer, he is now heavily focused on the metaverse, helping people become better educated in the space and also tackling some of his more critical issues. John, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Awesome to be here. Thanks for having me. So let's start a little on your background and take us through what got you into gaming in particular. Uh, well, I, I like to think that I grew up in the metaverse, actually, because I had two big loves when I was a kid, Dungeons and Dragons, which is this realm of pure imagination, which I think of that kind of as the metaverse with the social connections you're forming to the other players. And then the other was computer programming. So I kind of put those two together, ended up starting a game studio that, that I began with uh, my wife, who I met in an online game. It was a little unusual back then, but kind of pre-metaverse or version of the metaverse. Um, and, you know, as you mentioned, started other companies, been super lucky to be in, you know, co- creator platforms for content and an advertising network. And then I got to make games again, um, but ultimately decided that the thing that I could really bring to the world was just elevate creativity through the world and help millions of people that want to make games today, but ultimately, you know, the metaverse is going to be built by game technology and game design and, and the things we've learned about these social experiences over many decades now. So I felt that if we could be the technology that helped people do that really well around games, then we would be in a position to help all these other things flourish in the future. I've got my list of questions, but I want to go back to you immediately, uh, how you met your wife in, in what you describe as the metaverse and uh, explore that a little bit. Yeah, well, so I guess you, to even talk about that, you have to define what the metaverse is because that, that means different things to different people, I think. But to me, it's the real-time internet. It's real-time activities. It's about putting people at the center of what you're doing and letting stuff unfold in real time around you. So this has actually been going on for a long time, especially in games, right? Games has actually shown us this future long ago. And this thing we're calling the metaverse, I think, is all this game technology leaking into all these other potential applications. But yeah, I met my wife, my future wife at that time in, a, in an online game called Gemstone. It was back in the 90s. It was quite a, quite a while ago. But there was real-time games that you could play then, even on the internet. And you, you can't shoot it down. You can't do anything. It's, it's it. It's fixed. It's real-time. It's real world. So let's talk about Beamable and uh, your founding journey. Can you explain a little bit about that and how you got to where you are? Sure. Um, it was born out of another company called Disruptor Beam. So Disruptor Beam was a game studio. I, after having run a, a gaming advertising network, I decided to go back into making games. And we had this idea of making 
story-based games where there was a lot of social connection. Remember, I was, you know, I was a Dungeons and Dragons player back in the day, and I and I was always compelled by the idea of storytelling and group storytelling and the relationships that could be formed be between players. So I was really interested in exploring that in new platforms that had not yet really captured that kind of experience. So we targeted the social networking world, like Facebook games, as well as mobile, uh, mobile online games. So we, we started there. Now, what we discovered quickly into that is to bring a story-driven experience to people in those formats. They tend to have a very short attention span in terms of when they're going to decide to get involved with a game or not. So unlike what they call AAA games, where you might have just gotten a customer who paid 60 or $70 to play a game. They'll, they'll kind of, that player will go for hours and hours trying to figure out if they really like it and the world and the experience with mobile games, you know, you'll be lucky if they give you 30 seconds. So we did figure out that to be successful with this idea of story and social connection, we would have to set it in worlds that people were already in love with. So we started with game of Thrones um, did several games in several really popular television franchise universes. Ultimately, Star Trek was the biggest game that we had that we had made, and and it was through that journey that we learned. I learned personally, but everybody on the team really learned just how hard the technology underneath all of this is to get right. Because you've got very sophisticated communities, you've got very sophisticated economies now in these games. And you have to bring that all to life for people. And it can take millions and millions of dollars to actually build the infrastructure up for that. And at the same time, I saw all these trends taking place. I saw the potential for the metaverse to unfold and expand beyond games. I saw capital pouring into game development specifically. Like this year alone, $75 billion plus has gone into game development, which is way more than has ever happened before. Um, but it was even, you know, it's billions last year, right? So it's starting to really gear up. So I saw that people would have this urgent need to solve these economy and community problems in games because every game now has to have that connection to players, connection to community and fairly sophisticated economies if they're to be successful. So I just saw these things converging and thought that, you know, I have a background that I've been just super lucky to have done game development. So I understood it viscerally from that standpoint. I had been on the demand gen side with the ad network. I had built a creator platform for the web to help people be creative online. So you know, I just felt that there weren't that many people that could, that could bring those things together. And I had to do it given sort of my resume. So you know, decided to pivot the company and we sold off the games to other companies, Star Trek Timelines and Archer, which were the two games running at the time are still running today. They're, they're very, very successful with millions of players on them. But now we're focused 100% on being a technology company to help equip the game developers of today with everything that they need to actually build a successful online business. And then you know, in the future, it'll be social experiences and live music and all these other really, really interesting areas of the metaverse. It's incredibly exciting. I think that also perhaps our listeners don't realize how big this is, you know, in terms of uh, the gaming industry being much bigger than movies and music combined. So when we're talking about the metaverse, we're talking about another level altogether um, and how huge this could potentially become. So when you 
at Beamable, uh, you make it easier for people to sell, the, to build their, their dream games and uh, they can design their own worlds, uh, the whole player experience and the economy. And you basically deal with the rest of the, 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 the functionality and stuff behind it. So how do you achieve that? And what does that mean to, to our listeners? Well, let me draw some comparisons to some companies people might know about. If you look at something like Shopify, for example, Shopify is a way to set up a, a store on the internet. Before things like Shopify came along, people would have to build all this stuff up from scratch. They would, they would have to go in and program their store. They'd have to build a lot of pieces. And there were, there were companies around before Shopify that kind of did little pieces of it, but you were still always assembling it together. You'd need engineers and programmers kind of a technical process. And really how Shopify changed that is they went after the small and medium-sized businesses, made it super easy, top-down, visual, all of the operational aspects of actually keeping servers up, et cetera. Like that's just done for you automatically. And now because they made it so easy, even big companies are, are embracing Shopify as a platform. Another one would be like Roblox. So if you haven't looked at Roblox yet, check it out. Or if you have a kid in your house, ask them, they'll be able to tell you all about it <laughs> almost certainly. You know, ro what Roblox really did well is they put the power of creation in the hands of just about anybody to make a game, to make an experience. And they connect it to audiences through something which is essentially like the YouTube of games. So you come into Roblox, you see all these experiences that other people have authored, and they give you the authoring environment so that you can make it. It's not like you have to go to another game development kit. So, you know, I looked at both of those and I thought, you know, everybody in the past has solved these problems that I described, this, the problems of providing like a live server environment. They treated it as an engineering problem like a programming problem. So they'd give tools to programmers so the programmers could assemble pieces together and build your server for you. I looked at the way these creator platforms had evolved over time. And ultimately you have to make them a lot less technical, more drag and drop, more fully integrated. And that's our approach with Beamable is, is to really just put this power in the hands of anybody who wants to create a live game experience. And, and you really have to be successful at two things in this to, to be successful at this business. One is you just have to make it super, super easy, but then you have to also be able to scale way out to however many users end up on the platform because you can launch a game and it could have no players or it could have millions of players. And you have to be able to handle the success case where lots and lots of people show up. Now, you fight for game creators, game makers. How can gaming do better as an industry? And where, where are we going to go to longer term? Yeah, you know, so the game, first of all, the game industry is just an extraordinarily hard industry to be successful at. And there's a lot of rent taking across the industry. There's always someone who just wants to take a slice of your revenue. Today, a lot of the app stores, for example, take a high percentage of the revenue. And then on top of that, you're spending a lot, a lot of money on customer acquisition through the ad networks. So people are taking, you know, going and coming as far as your revenue is, is concerned. And I was a game developer. You know, I lived that life. I saw that happen. I had been very lucky that most of the games I made 
were successful. Not all this of them. Is, this is why you're my friend already. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, some stuff. I, not everything I did was successful. We had one game at Disruptor Beam that did terribly, and we had three that did really great. But um, I had lived all sides of that, and I just knew that game developers needed someone who was on their side, who is really aligned with their success, where the business model that we bring forth would really be something that grows with them as they're successful. And that's that's the thinking behind Beamable and what you were just referring to, the we fight for the game maker slogan that we use in, in some of our materials. That's like a poor, core part of our culture. Like that isn't just a slogan. Like when we are interviewing people to even join the team, we go through an interviewing process where we're trying to ask ourselves about this person. Is, is this someone who's going to really fight for the game maker? You know, it's part of the culture. We, we remind ourselves of it weekly. It's integrated into the way we talk about things. We it's integrated to like the weekly all hands meeting we have where we highlight our customers who are building on the platform where we all as an entire company look at what's going on. We try to discover ways that we could be more helpful to our customers. So I'm a big believer in company culture, but not just sort of the trite things like when you put up a few slogans on a wall or a few words or a wall or worse, like the 14 things up on the wall that no one even pays attention to anymore. I like to bring it down to you know two or three core attributes that are going to be particularly interesting to the company. And then what you do is you don't just say it, you embed it into the culture. You create the artifacts and the rituals and things that, that make it real. And we fight for the game maker is, is at the heart of our culture and what we're trying to do for our customers. Talk us, so talk us through some of the um, fantastic games you've created, um, Game of Thrones, Ascent and Star Trek Timelines. Tell us, tell us a little bit more about the creation of this and, and, and what it really means to have those big, big name products as part of your sort of portfolio. Yeah. So, you know, the, the license game business has changed a lot over time. But when we went and got those two names, this was the Wild West. Those really small names, yeah. <laughs> not, not, not important at all, unrecognized. Yeah. I, I think I stalked George R. Martin for two years. That's <laughs> kind of how I did it. And eventually his agent put me in front of him. I think maybe he imagined that he could finally get rid of me after like a half an hour <laughs> conversation with George or something. Turned out George liked the idea. George is an incredibly smart man, really genius, but you know, not, not particularly current in terms of technology, but could immediately understand everything about technology, which was an interesting thing about him. So it was like a two-year process of getting from the idea we had for Disruptor Beam to finally getting in front of George. Um, and then it was a collaborative process. I think the reason he liked us uh, and me in particular was, you know, I had actually read the books. I understood what he was trying to get done in them. I was I, I really understood a lot about his artistic vision for it, which we were able to then bring to life in a game. Like there's, there, we, it was a phase in the market where people were talking about quote unquote social gaming. And I told George, you know, this is going to be more of an anti-social game if we're going to be true to Game of Thrones because people are going to be backstabbing each other a lot. And, and he loved it. Um, Star Trek we got because we had done well with Game of Thrones. And I think that they appreciated again, that we could be really true to the artistic vision that Gene Roddenberry had had 
with Star Trek because Star Trek is a really complicated IP on a lot of fronts from a game perspective, right? So in some sense, it's a lot easier to make a game where it's just going to be all about fighting, right? Like I envy everybody who's ever gotten to work on a Star Wars game because you pretty much know what the game is going to be about. You're either in spaceships firing at each yeah, other yeah. or you've got lightsaber battles. Those are sort of the two really, really interesting aspects of Star Wars. And then it's wrapped up in a lot of story. But Star Trek, you know, it's about optimism, exploration, decision-making, ethics, philosophy. It brings in all these other elements. So we had to figure out a way to weave together that story of Star Trek, that backdrop of Star Trek into something which wasn't going to be all about fighting. Now, fighting's part of Star Trek, but it's maybe, I don't know, a third of Star Trek as opposed to like most of Star Trek. So, you know, that was a really interesting project. Um, they believed me when I said that we could figure that out and they let us run with it. And the game's been running, you know, five plus years at this point and, and has attracted millions of people who I think have also appreciated that, that we've been true to the fiction. You did it. And it's amazing. And um, so going back to the metaverse, in your words, how would you describe where we're going to go with this? Because this is obviously the, the topic of the podcast and, and uh, we're all sort of in this period of discovery and opportunity right now. So where would you say we're going? And what's, what does, if you just look at gaming or just look at where we're going to take this, what does metaverse mean to you? Let me just split that into a couple of pieces because I think people have a tendency to talk about the technology but it's also the social aspects of this that are really important. From a technology standpoint, the metaverse is just the next generation of the internet oriented towards these real-time activities and then everything that's going to support that in its periphery, whether that's VR and AI and AR, all these different technologies are in the orbit of that real-time activity. But I think the real-time nature of it, as opposed to the transactional nature of looking at a web page, going to an online shop, buying things, we're going to find that that stuff continues, but it's going to be now much more about day-to-day real-time activity. So that is what I think the metaverse is. But socially, culturally, I think you have to look at the backdrop that has gotten us to, to this point, because over the last couple of decades now, we've had a couple of generations of people who have really grown up with this idea that their digital expression, their digital identity is as important, if not even more important than their physical identity. And I, I avoid the distinction between like what's real and what's virtual. I think maybe more in terms of what's physical and what's virtual, because the virtual world is real. That's the key point here is that people now regard their virtual, their online activities as being as real as anything else that they're going to do. And that's because we've had a lot of time not just on the social networks, but in online games and MMORPGs and various forms of representing yourself digitally. And the metaverse is really just the next extension of that, where it's going to continue it. You'll be interacting with more people. We'll have avatar systems. You'll be going from place to place with a consistent identity. So, or not, or different pseudonymous identities, right? So that's, I think, the key part of this here is to really understand the culture behind it and the importance of digital expression and then connecting with other people socially through those digital representations. You have a fantastic blog 
called Building the Metaverse, which I encourage all our listeners to, uh, to avidly read. And it covers things like jobs in the metaverse, uh, trying to create a glossary almost of, of the types of jobs and, and positions and, and, and experiences around the metaverse. So um, can you outline some of those topics for us? And what are the main things you think people need to know now for where we're going to get to in the next five or 10 years? Um, well, I, I think at last count, I have like 65 articles uh, on the blog. Um, only, only. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've got, I, you know, so here's what I'm doing here, right? Because my, my actual job is run a company. <laughs> I'm running Beamable. <laughs> oh, that, that, old, that old thing. <laughs> yeah. But why do I do that? It, it's a, it's a way for me to open source my thinking really. And it, sort of makes me smarter through the process of articulating these ideas, constructing a vision, hearing feedback, getting to talk to lots of other really well-informed and smart people out there. So that's why I'm doing it. So the topics that I cover, I'm trying to create a holistic understanding of what this future not only looks like, like from a predictive standpoint, but also, frankly, my vision for what it should become, because I'm not a passive observer of the metaverse, I'm building the metaverse through Beamable. Like I'm one of a lot of companies, right? So one thing you'll find on, on my blog is this market map of the metaverse that has gotten spread around quite a bit, but it's my way of structuring the market into seven layers. Can kind of think of it like an onion. The experiences are at the surface. That's what everybody sees. But then what's underneath that? It goes from experiences to discovery and then the creator economy that enables it, the spatial computing layer, which is so important for the future of this, the, the decentralization of it, which is going to put power back in the hands of owners and creators, the human interface hardware, and then all the way down to like the infrastructure of like semiconductors, batteries, networks, et cetera. So I try to get a very holistic understanding. And then this market map has, you know, 200 plus companies at this point where I've tried to sort them into those categories. Again, it's my way of open sourcing my thinking about this because, you know, Beamable is one out of those 200 companies. And of course, there's many more companies that I just, I just don't know about them or they haven't really gotten fully off the ground yet. But there's a lot of us building this and I am trying to construct an understanding as well as a vision for how this market ought to unfold. You know, the thing that um, inspires me most when I'm talking to thought leaders such as yourself is how much the metaverse is a creative space. It's about creativity. It's about, it's about, if you look at blockchain, it's about bringing power back to the people and all those things. But the metaverse and how we are, how we're all looking at this is one of the most creative, inspirational opportunities for all of us as mankind is, is that we are we're almost taking all our clothes off and our uniforms off and we're just standing there naked in front of each <laughs> other to to kind of just admit that we've got everything ahead of us and we can we can create anything we want um, and i think that that does come from gaming it does come from sci-fi it does come from this aspiration of of a very different future and it's really really exciting um, and I really admire, um, you know, the, the stuff you've done in the space. So I would love to know what you think the sort of next 10 years look like, uh, whether it's metaverse or just, just technology or everything else. But where do you, where do you see us um, in the next 10 years? Well, there, there's so many things we could talk about, but let me just comment on the part that I think is most exciting, which is 
a reflection of what you were just saying, which is the creative aspects of it. Because to me, the metaverse is this creative space for everybody. My, my personally transformative change that I would like to bring to the world is just elevating creativity for everybody. And right now, it's hard in a lot of the technology spaces that we've got available to be creative because there are so many technologies and programming and technical pieces that, that you have to know. And that's great if you're a programmer. I'm a programmer. I'm a software engineer from back in the day. But I would like to make that so that lots of people, billions of people can participate creatively in this space. Because to me, like one of the most fundamental human things is that creativity and then the connections that we form with people through our expression, through our creativity, through the stories we tell. So that's what I, that's the change I want to bring about in the world. And, and I see the metaverse as a, as a place for that. So my hope for the metaverse over the next decade is that it truly is a place for all creators because we're all creators, right? So we have to make it a place for everybody, not just a few, you know, super powerful companies that are going to gate it, take big rents, own it. Um, and by the way, same thing for anybody who just wants to participate, right? Like you should own your own identity. You should go out online to the internet and the metaverse and have sovereignty over your creations and who you are. No one should own that for you and rent access to it. So I'm very excited about a future where we put that power in the hands of everybody to be a creator and ultimately have sovereignty over it so that your creation is, is something you can do with as you choose. Facebook cough, shall I say. <laughs> um, yes. Um, uh, your, your interest, particularly around creative leadership and uh, how we can leverage technology to move faster and, as described, shots on goal. What needs to happen for us to achieve this? Well, when I talk about shots on goal, it's, it's about the idea that for game developers to be successful, they have to remove a lot of barriers and try a lot of things. They have to try a lot of iterations in each game that they're working on. And maybe they even need to try more than one game, right? So games is a super hard business and it really is about connecting with a player, with an audience. And the more you work on a game, actually, the harder and harder it gets because you're sort of connected to your own creation and, and you can often lose that connection to how other people are gonna start engaging with it from a user interface standpoint, from the fundamental fun. So very, very complicated creative process. So I think the thing that makes games fail a lot of the time is when you spend a lot of time without the opportunities to get input from your audience or from players so that you can course correct and even course correct into a completely different game if you need to. Like our, our Star Trek game that we talked about earlier is a good example of that. Star Trek Timelines, we tried five completely different game concepts before we settled on the fifth, which ended up being pretty good. And even after that fifth, we made pretty significant changes, even within the space of that game over the couple of years that we built it. So, you know, it takes a long time to make really good games, unfortunately, right? So job one is, can we speed up that process? Can we shave 
in number of months off of that so that your time and resources are spent doing the things that matter, which is storytelling and features and the experiential qualities of the game. And also so that the time you do have within that, you get, as uh, as you were echoing my own comments from the past, more shots on goal so that you can try things because you're going to get a lot wrong in a game for sure, right? So my last question is going to be about what do we expect from Beamable going forward in 2022? And what's next for you, John? Uh, well, I'm focused 100% on, on Beamable and making it really successful, which means making our customers successful, which are game studios, because we fight for the game makers. So I'm really just all about how can we get the people that have signed up on the platform this year live? How can we continue to help more people as we go into the next year? We've got a lot of games that have signed up and are in the process of rolling out. So I just want to make sure that they can get to market and gain millions of players and, and be successful in their own right. And if we do that, then you know, Beamable has succeeded, in it, has succeeded in its mission. And that's what you know, will really matter. You know, we're both, we're both uh, fans of technology, but I can tell you that I'm not a gamer personally. And my last games I was playing was on the ZX Spectrum. <laughs> back in the day so so i'm not a gamer but pretty I, hardcore i, I like uh, that <laughs> pretty hardcore yeah <laughs> zx81 first and the uh sing the singlet spectrum um and that's the probably the last time i properly played games in fairness but um this space is so exciting and so interesting and, and of course it's it's basically uh such an important component of what we describe as the as the metaverse going forward so it's been a real pleasure to have you on the on the podcast and thank you so much for your time oh it's been my pleasure thanks you can tell i love this stuff it's a lot of fun <laughs> oh just a little bit yeah <laughs> we're two geeks together so thank you so much john thank you you've been listening to metaverse with me francis hellier thank you to my guest john radell for a brilliant conversation tweet us at metaverse pod with any suggestions or feedback and if you enjoyed the podcast please do share a link on social media. You can sign up to receive an email when a new episode drops at our website, metaverse.fm. 